It's Friday. That means live q and I've got an open phone line with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven callers on the line. So today's going to be busy and fast-paced. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I am your host on Fridays. I do my very best to do a weekly live Q&A. Got a live phone line with callers. It's kind of like radio. I just recorded a day in advance before you hear it. And we've got a diverse array of questions today. I think you'll really like it. These Friday Q&A shows, uh, for the last few weeks, they were a really good opportunity. If you wanted to ask me a question, uh, if you wanted to ask me a question directly, you've heard shows in the past where one caller or two callers got the entire uh, got the entire phone, uh, the the entire hour with me. So this was about the cheapest uh, access to uh, to me that you were going to get. So, uh, however, uh, with that, uh, today we've got a busy full phone lines. In fact, I've got them locked and I've rejected about four or five of you. If you'd like to get on a call like this, the primary way to do that is to join as a patron of the show. Uh, these shows are have always been open to patrons, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash patron. However, the last few times I didn't have a ton of participation from the patrons, so then I extended this invitation to the email list. So if you'd like to be basically guaranteed to be on a show like this in the future, sign up to become a patron and or consider joining the email list as well, which you can find at radicalpersonalfinance.com. A few of you have said it's not as obvious as you wish it were. Don't we worry? We are going to uh, we're going to take care of that uh, and make it more obvious in the future. So lots of improvements around here. So if you'd like to be join uh, a call like this again, go to uh, radicalpersonalfinance.com. Let's get right to it. I've got one, two, three, four, five, six men and one lady. So in my world, ladies come first. So Ruha in Alabama, go ahead and let us know your question or comment, please, and let's see how I can serve you today. Great, thanks, Joshua. Um, so we are uh, actually moving into a tiny home. Uh, we've got, so we're moving from Alabama to Louisiana and currently we live in one big home and we also bought some land in Alabama to park the tiny home on before deciding we were going to move down, uh, to be closer to family. So my question is, what should we do with the house and the land? The house is currently, if we sell it, it'll be worth about 20000 less than what we paid for it. And that was four years ago when we bought it. Um, and the land, I mean, we can probably get exactly what we bought it for, but, you know, I'm worried about closing costs. And also, I, I don't know how the tax situation works out. So you, the land that you own is in, is in Tennessee or Alabama? Which one? I got confused on the states. They're both Alabama. Okay, but you're moving from the land in the house to other land? Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Louisiana. Why would you not sell it? Why, what reasons would you have for keeping it? Well, the land, I don't really have a reason for keeping it. Um, the, the, I guess, I mean, I, I do definitely want to sell the land. I guess my question on that is more along the lines of, what are the implications? Because I wouldn't sell it if it turns out that, you know, buying and selling something, you know, back to back is detrimental to, you know, our, our taxes for the year. Do you think that you have a profit in the land? 
uh, in renting the land? No, meaning that you said it's worth about what you paid for, right? So you don't have a lot of profit here. Right. And uh, so basically, let's deal with them one at a time, with the land. If you say you have no reason for keeping it and you want to sell it, then you should just simply sell it. Uh, and as far as the financial implications of it, uh, the only the financial implications is just simply going to be how much gain or loss will you have from the sale? And it sounds like you're not going to have any gain. If it's worth about what you're going to sell it for, you're not going to have any gain. And your only potential loss would be any sales costs, with the transaction costs mm-hmm. of actually selling it, commissions and things like that. Uh, if you don't see any reason to own it, if the land is not particularly valuable to you, you don't think that it's going to appreciate measurably in price, then I think the simplest and easiest thing to do is just to go ahead and, and sell it and be free of the the hassle, uh, be free of the 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 constraint, be free of the lack of minimalism, <laughs> yeah, dealing with a property right. that you don't really want to own, and just be free of the headache of it. Uh, even if it loses, you know, even if you lose a little bit of money, um, a negligible amount of money, I would see value in just simply having it gone uh, so that my life is more streamlined and more simple, unless you have a compelling reason to to uh, to own it. That that approach is relatively simple, and there because it's basically a wash. You're not going to have any gain or loss in the sale. Then there are really almost no tax implications. It's just a matter of mentally getting over it. So that one seems simple. Now the house. Okay. Why would you choose to keep the house? What would be your argument there? Well, there's a lot of developments um, coming closer and closer to where the house is located, and my hope is that. In a year or two, it's actually going to be worth at least what we paid for, if not a little bit more. So my hope there is um, I believe we can rent it for definitely the cost of the um, mortgage and some extra to cover any uh, maintenance repairs and things like that. So I think we can break even on renting it uh, through a property manager, so that covers uh, her fees as well. Sure, sure. And... So I just don't have a really strong motivation to sell it because, you know, I don't I don't need the capital. If you sold the property today, what do you think it would sell for? Uh about 20,000 less than what we paid for it originally okay. 4 years ago. So yeah. Okay. So and you've been living in the house for the last 4 years, right? Mhm. Ballpark, what's the value of the property? So if we sold it today, it'd be about two eighty five. And do you? How much equity do you have in the property? Uh, the outstanding mortgage is two twenty five. Okay. So the the way to answer the question. So the scenario that you're describing here is, I don't want to sell it for less than what I paid for it which is an appropriate consideration. I don't want to sell it for less than I paid for it because you've put investment capital into it and you've lost some of that money. The way to answer the question is to calculate what your potential return is from this investment and compare it to your potential return from another investment. And so if you sold it today, uh, you think it would sell for about $285,000. That means you paid $305,000 for it. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that accurate? Yes. Okay. And for the sake of simple radio math, I'm going to use uh, just simply, I'm going to ignore the sales costs right now, but you need to redo this analysis later with what you think would be the actual transaction costs of the deal. But if you sold it today for $285,000 and you paid off the mortgage of $225,000, that means that you would clear $60,000 of equity. 
Again, you need to factor in transaction costs, but for radio math, I'm going to just use $60,000 of equity. The question is this. The $60,000 of equity that you have in this property, if your estimate is accurate, if you think that in the next year, because of the local development costs and because of the local changes in the market, if you think that property would increase in value by $20,000 such that your $60,000 of capital would increase to $80,000 of capital, if you think that's a good investment, then you should consider keeping it. If you think you can do better elsewhere, if you think you can redeploy that $60,000 of capital into something else that's going to do better, then you should consider selling it. Because it's immaterial what you paid for the property versus what it's worth now. That's a sunk cost, and you can't do anything about it. So you've got to clear that from your mind, and you've got to think, would I rather have $60,000 invested in this property in Alabama, in this particular house, or would I rather have the $60,000 invested into something else or under some other conditions? That's the question that you have to ask yourself. And then as you look at that, you need to also consider what the rental cost would be. So if you are just simply renting it out for enough to cover the mortgage and you're not going to be gaining any profit, then you're not getting any return on that $60,000. You're just covering your financing costs. But the way to do it is just simply to look exclusively at the equity that you have in the property, consider what you think will happen with that house, and then compare it to anything else that you would do with the money. And then out of that analysis, you should be able to make a decision properly. Is that helpful? Yes, absolutely. Cool. Thanks. Thank you for, uh, thank you for calling in. Next, we are going to go to Guy in Pennsylvania. Guy, it's a little bit noisy, so try to be uh, quiet here. And go ahead and introduce yourself. Ask your question. Let's see how I can serve you today, please. Yeah, good morning, Joshua. I appreciate you taking my call. I, uh, I've been a listener since you interviewed on the Money Plan SOS podcast a few years ago. Uh, so I've enjoyed you ever since. Um, my, my question today uh, in regards to switching to a local advisor. Uh, this question comes up for me uh, because my my younger brother is working with a local advisor who frequently contacts him and uh, keeps him updated, asks him questions uh, just to make sure that everything is going well. Uh, so it's clear that he's monitoring the account. The guy that I set mine up with when I was 27 years old, right around in, in 2012, uh, was a, a Dave Ramsey ELP, a uh, wonderful guy. He, he came, we sat down, spent a lot of time together, and he set me up a couple of different uh, uh, accounts through Fidelity uh, with the same in the Dave Ramsey structure. So I've got five different uh, A-share uh, a funds. Uh, one uh, set of five is in a Roth IRA that is set up for long-term investing and one that's in an individual that is set up for short term that I essentially use for uh, a long term car fund, but I'm pulling out of it frequently uh, when we need new vehicles. But um, and then he also set me up with a C share that I used to save up for a down payment on my house uh, over a four year span, which worked out. Everything has worked out really well. Um, the challenge that I have is, from my understanding, if I try to contact him, it takes a while, uh, a long while uh, to get any word back from him. So I know he's very busy um, driving all over uh, the region. And 
so I, I don't think that he's monitoring my account at all. I kind of, it, to me, I feel as if he, because of being so busy, he became one of, one of those guys that sets you up and then moves on and collects the commission, which I find to, which I, I think is at the industry maximum. I think it's 5.75% uh, for those A shares. Um, so so my question to you is, is, and it's set up, it's an individual uh, Fidelity account, so I can pull it out anytime I want. I have complete control. It's not something that I have to contact him with to get to get the money from it or to make changes. Uh, so I don't need him other unless I want to make structure changes. Um, so my question to you is, is how do I know if I should switch? Is there value in having a guy like my brother has that will contact him that I can go sit down with at his office um, to switch to something uh, where I know that it's being monitored and I'm going to get updates on even, you know, you know, law changes and, and just suggestions based on stage of life. Um, or can I just trust what I have and, and just keep putting in the money and, and, you know, what I watch it in personal capital and I know what's, what's there right, and what's right. happening for the most part. So, me, uh, so I got your question. How much money do you have invested with this particular advisor? Uh, it would be right around 34,000, 26 of that is in the Roth and 8,000 is in what I call the car fund, the individual investments. Okay. So it, so that's the, this is the most important, uh, consideration here, uh, in terms of how much money you have, because this is what's going to drive how much service you get with a financial advisor. And you need to think like a business person and think about the business of giving, uh, financial advice. If you think about the business of giving financial advice, you have to recognize that your financial advisor is going to, uh, is being paid based upon the revenue to their practice. And for the sake of simplicity, let's start with it, with pretending that this is a fee-based account where the financial advisor is earning a flat fee. And let's use uh, a flat fee of about 1%, which would be the industry standard. If you have a $34,000 account, then that means that on a flat fee basis of 1%, your financial advisor is earning $340 per year. Now, on a $34,000 account, your fee would actually be far higher than 1% because there's no way for the advisor to cover the cost, to cover the cost of technology, the platforms, et cetera, and to do it in any measure profitably. Your fee with a standard person, personal financial advisor who works with individuals would be probably closer to 2% on this amount of money, one and a half, one point seven five percent 1.75%. So total revenue to that advisor's practice would be about $340 per year. Now, in your case, because you don't have have this set up in the context of uh, in the context of uh, a fee-based account, but rather your account is based based on commissions. The advisor received a large upfront commission uh, from the sale of these mutual funds, as you said. Let's say it was five point seven five percent. So you uh, so on thirty four thousand dollars. Pretend you invested that much money. Then that would be about nineteen hundred dollars of commissions, and then they're receiving a small trail commission, what are called in the business of trail commissions, which is a very small amount of money on an ongoing basis. So they've received most of their compensation up front. So here's the, the incentive that the advisor has, and here's how I would approach the, 
the problem if I were you. Because the advisor earned an upfront commission, um, let's assume the best. It's probably a good guy. You said you've got a good feelings from him. He worked hard. He helped you, et cetera. Because he earned an upfront commission, he knows that he earned that money upfront for not very much work. And so when you call, he's going to want to do a good job for you to help service your accounts, to help you with the questions that you have. He's going to want to do the best for you. But when he's earning a small trail commission of, uh, I, I can't, I mean, what, 25 basis points, something like that, he's only earning revenue to his practice from your accounts uh, under $100 a year. So uh, so in terms of his actual incentive to meet with you, if he's got incentive to meet with you of under $100 a year uh, versus other prospective clients that are million-dollar accounts where he has the potential revenue of, say, $10,000 a year of, of, of revenue or p- potentially much larger commissions if he's working on a commission basis, um, he doesn't have a lot of incentive to meet with you. So the problem is this. Um, he knows that he wants to help you, and he knows that he wants to do a good job for you because you're a client, but he also knows that you're not an A client. And so if I were coaching a financial advisor like him, well, the first thing that we would do is we would do client segmentation. And you'd segment your clients into A clients, B clients, and C clients. And each advisor will have their own criteria for how they would segment their clients. But the criteria would involve, number one, um, uh, financial considerations, how large is the account, or how much financial potential does the advisor have. And it would also involve um, the, the, the strength of the relationship. Uh, you know, I worked with clients when I was an advisor. I worked with clients that probably I shouldn't have, have spent as much time with, but I liked them and I like spending time with them. And most advisors, one of the biggest things, once you get your feet under you and you're confident in what you're doing, uh, one of the great things you try to do every year is fire a client that you don't like uh, because working with people who drain your energy is really, really exhausting. And so one of the big good pieces of consulting and coaching advice for financial advisors is Go through your practice at least once a year, and I always love um, Nick Murray always recommended doing it on your birthday as a birthday present to yourself. You go through your practice, and you fire your most obstreperous client, and whoever you don't like, whoever's the biggest problem, you go ahead and 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 uh, and, and send them away. So what advisors do is they segment their clients into A clients, B clients, and C clients, done based upon strength of relationship, current financial position, and financial capacity. Many advisors, if you are, let's say that you earn a little bit of money, but they can tell that you're working in a business that's going to that's going to result in a lot of income in the future, then they'll say, well, this client, they're a B plus uh, because they've got, they don't have a lot of money now. They're not earning a lot, but they have a lot of financial capacity. So um, the problem with with guy with you is, and I, you don't, and let's ignore the prospect of financial capacity. The problem that you face with this advisor is the fact that, that with the $34,000 of accounts, you're not an A client. Uh, and unless you're going to become an A client, this this is probably going to continue. So what do you do? Well, if you like this guy and if he helps you with, with some of the information that you need, then you can continue to work with him, but you're going to have to be the one who bugs him, who reaches out, to, reaches out to you. Because when an advisor segments their client base into A, B, and C, uh, an, an experienced advisor also goes ahead and puts in place a contact plan. And so um, you reach out and you, you contact your best clients a certain number of times per year based upon whether they're in your A, A, A tranche, your B tranche, or your C tranche. And 
And so your C clients will receive, uh, let's say, your monthly newsletter. You sign up your C clients for your monthly newsletter, and then you have your staff go ahead and uh, once a year reach out to you and see if see how everything's going. Your B clients get uh, a monthly newsletter, and they get a call from you once you know once a year or twice a year. Your A clients get a call from you every quarter or more, and you send them uh, and you set up a spreadsheet in your office, and you say, okay, they're getting, tw- uh, and you plan out the number of client contacts that they're going to get per year. So the A clients get invited to a client appreciation event. Uh, they get birthday phone calls. They get personal notes. They get personal emails. They get personal uh, personal things. And it's based upon their financial capacity. So that's, that's what the advisor is doing. That's what they're thinking. Now, uh, when they're very busy, it's not that he means bad. He wants to do the best for you, but there's no way for it to work financially to be a really uh, a really good thing. So here's what I would do if I were you. Um, in order for you to get more advice, you're going to have to pay more money. Um, so if you're not getting advice from this guy, then you should look at your accounts and you could you should look around and see is there a place that you can get a better deal. Thankfully, in today's world, there's uh, there are tons of really great independent investing options. And you can look at your accounts and you can say, what are my fees? What are my costs? And you can go and you can look at other places and, and try to figure out, can I get a better deal somewhere else? If you're not getting the, try to, what I would do is I would try, if you like this guy, I would try to ask him your questions, reach out to him, um, you know, schedule a phone call. The best way to do that is probably to reach out to his staff and schedule a time with his staff uh, to schedule an appointment with him. Uh, it'd be because he's going to have that he knows he he ha- owes you a loyalty because you're a client of his and he feels bad uh, he feels bad that he hasn't served you as much as he would like to but you're in his C client base so you've got if you're the squeaky wheel you can get time with him uh, and that's that's how I'd approach it if you need more financial advice, you're going to have to find some way to pay for it. And with $34,000 of assets, the only way that you're going to get more focused, clear, comprehensive financial advice is to pay for it on an hourly basis uh, with somebody who works with somebody on an hourly or package deal because you don't have enough money pulled together yet to where you're really going to be able to get the services of a good, uh, of a good financial advisor. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. That that brings it into perspective. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It's a hard question to answer, and um, it's really hard because that's the type of thing that the financial advisors face commonly is just this 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 desire to do the best for everybody, but also this this constraint with the numbers. And uh, advisors go businesses go through this life cycle where in the beginning they'll work with kind of almost anybody, but then they create this 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 massive client base of uh, uh, this massive client base of 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 clients that really they probably shouldn't be spending a lot of time with. Uh, uh, one more idea that I, th- I forgot, Guy, that you can do is reach out to this advisor and see if he'll refer you or refer your account to a younger, more junior uh, advisor, somebody who can work with you on your account, uh, who uh, who you may who may not be as big or as busy as this other person. A lot of times, if you don't have a lot of money pulled together, you may be able to find a young and and less experienced star who will give you time, give you effort, give you focus and energy uh, while they're still building and developing things. So go ahead and see if you can uh, see if you can find uh, maybe get a referral to somebody within their practice or reach out to one of their junior associates for help. I hope that helps. All right, Chuck in Atlanta. Let's go ahead and hear your question. Let's see how I can serve you today, please. Hello, Joshua. Good morning, and uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, basically, 
I have where where people come to me for finance financial help, and I like helping like uh, non-custodial parents and that kind of thing. And lately, I've been coming across uh, a lot of non-custodial parents who they have one bad relationship, have a child, and that that breaks up, and then they have the the follow-up. Uh, uh, another relationship that breaks up and then they got uh, two custody or two child support payments. Now, usually in most states, well, every state is different because it's state by state. It's about a third of your income for each bad relationship. So they have a third of their income towards uh, the first child and then a third of their income might be towards the second child and then another third of their income goes towards taxes. So basically, uh, no matter how hard they work, uh, it seems to go in a negative manner because child support is usually based upon a percentage of the income, right? So they get a raise, it doesn't right. matter, right? and so forth. And I've been giving them some some advice, what I could think of, but I just want to bounce those ideas off of you as well as see if you can come up with anything else I can tell them because, you know, the, the divorce rate is high, whatever it is. I don't know what the, the actual statistic is, but it does seem to affect a lot of people. Right. And, you know, it's it's a negative cycle, and I want to see if I can – help some of these guys uh, change their finances and change their financial momentum so they could be actually a better parent right, right. to their kids, right? So, you know, if you're working overtime and crazy time and all that kind of stuff, then you have no time to spend with the kids. And a lot of times, uh, you know, I've, I've come across guys that are living in uh, containers, living at in people's basements, and, you know, my, my main uh, advice that I've been giving them is, the, you know, it's a financial game. You know, they can only take child support on money you earn. So I, I say, okay, well, where where can you go and use your your social capital and say, hey, you know, friends and family, where you can ask for help? And some of them have been able to be living with relatives for free, and, and you know, and I've, I've some of them have houses and, and a lot of them don't. But the ones that have houses, I tell them, hey, maybe you could take on roommates and into further cost of the mortgage payments or, or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it depends upon what kind of situation they're coming in. Some are in their court case and some are after the court case, which after the court case, of course, is harder because, uh, you know, prevention is, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, and, uh, you know, the courts sometimes take into factors such as, you know, the distance between, uh, the non-custodian custodial parent and, 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 that into the child support and, and so forth and the cost of that, you know, the only other advice I've been giving them is like, uh, you know, maybe start a business on the side and, and live in the, the business place of business for a little while until you can figure out something. And then, you know, uh, the, the, if they get a second job, it, you know, that's even harder it reduces their, their time, uh, with their, their children, which, you know, is kind of counterproductive, you know, with 90% of the people in, in jail, have no father involvement. That's mm-hmm. kind of a bad thing. Right. And, you know, uh, they got the big stick over them of if they don't pay child support, they get jail time. Right. You know, they could lose their, I had a truck driver that, that was in danger of losing his license, you know, which is his livelihood. And, you know, people with passports, all that kind of, kind of crazy stuff. So that's kind of, how do you, what would you tell them to kind of, you know, that would help to, to get them in a more positive thing and, and you know, because running on, z- on zero, you know, the math, one-third, 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 you're left with zero. Right. So, I mean, right. I, I don't know what else to tell them. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> tough. Um, 
my, my question, I'm glad you told, you kind of shared what you tell them, uh, because that was going to be my next question. I, you know, I've never really, I don't think I've ever given financial advice personally to someone in that situation. So it's a new, it's a new kind of problem to me. And I recognize, I recognize that, that it exists. <laughs> you know, just it's funny last night I was looking at a book, um, by a lady named Helen Smith called men on strike, why men are boycotting marriage, fatherhood and the American dream and why it matters. And one of her major uh, propositions that she puts forth is that in her opinion, men are mistreated in divorce courts and the standards that are held on men are much higher than on women. And it leads to ruination for many of the men. And that's, that's one of her arguments is that many men see this and so they're avoiding marriage because of seeing how, in her opinion, they're unfairly treated by the courts. So I was just thinking about this just last night and wondering if that were true, wondering how I could uh, you know, how I could learn whether I felt it were true or weren't true. Uh, and <laughs> now this question comes this morning. Um I guess the, you know my first concern is not for the uh, obviously the man is sitting there in front of you. But my first concern is not for the um, the financial well being of the man. My first concern is for the financial well being of uh, of his child or children and of uh, of his wife. Uh, you know all of that all of this could have been avoided if he'd been able to stay there and to support his children in the relationship in which they were birthed. So I tend to be one of those who starts there. But I also do acknowledge that the situation is very, very difficult. And if you're sitting there with the guy and he's saying, listen, I am doing this. I'm doing very well. Uh, my children are supported. And I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to figure out how to get um, how to get free uh, then, you know, and how to be a better father because I'm not spending all my time working and all the money's not sucked up. Then, you know, then I, I am doing my best. So I guess the only advice that I could think of in that situation would be to study the rules of the game and figure out how it's played and then um, find the, the break in the rules. And I think it relates to income. First, it would be a very high-earning man who one-third of his income goes to taxes. That would be a very high-income-earning uh, uh, person, uh, you know, a, a, a truck driver, as you said, somebody who's earning, let's just say, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. A third of the income is not necessarily going to go to taxes. So, um, so we're so we got to look at what 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 exactly are we talking about? If the child support payments, so a couple of things, as you well know, um, if one of the if 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 you were retained to give financial advice to um, the husband uh, in a divorce proceeding, uh, one of the major things you want to do is you want to get as much of the money uh, that as much of the settlement that's split between alimony and child support. You want to get as much of the money counted as alimony versus as child support in order to lower the overall taxable burden. If a man is is going through divorce proceedings and if the judge rules that he owes um, – you know, five hundred dollars a month of a thousand dollars a month of alimony and a thousand dollars a month of child support. The thousand dollars a month of alimony, the tax burden of that, will be re- removed from his return, and it will be added to his wife's return. So that can help with the tax planning as well. Now, I think most divorce attorneys, if the if the the man has good counsel, most divorce attorneys are aware of that and will do that. And it's not a matter. There's going to be a, a the, when the judge is working through the case, they're going to decide how much goes. 
to alimony and child support based upon uh, based upon you know the proper split. But that is important, and that can be a very significant financial planning consideration because if we can lower the taxable income. Uh, by having more of the money shifted to alimony payments versus shifted to child support payments, then that will be helpful for uh, for the man that we're giving um, that we're giving financial advice to. So that's but you're, but by the time you come into the situation, that's a little bit too late. Next, I think it's important to look at the term of the payments. So uh, given the fact that we're talking about child support, child support is not. Uh, judged as a lifelong commitment. It's generally until the child reaches the age of majority. So there's a difference if uh, a man has a 15-year-old son or daughter versus if a man has a two-year-old son or daughter. Uh, that'll make a difference in the financial advice. So I think it's important to uh, to consider uh, where the person is in their financial journey. Then if the game is played on income, I think you go to income. I think that instead of uh, if the man is, is, is going to be assessed higher child support payments by, um, uh, by based upon earning a higher income, and I want, to be, I want to be very clear, first I want to make sure that he's meeting his child support obligations, and I, think we, I would assume we'd be agreed on that. I don't want a man playing games and his child going uncared for because that would be immoral for him to not take care of his own children. So uh, as long as his children are being uh, cared for adequately and their needs are being covered, and we're just, doing, we're just trying to figure out how can we fix the situation a little bit, I think you lower your income partly through to reducing needs, doing things like you said, of, of reducing living expenses, um, taking advantage of some of the social capital that you have to be able to lower housing costs, uh, to be able to lower transportation costs. And I think you approach your business and your career differently. And instead of pursuing earned income, you pursue equity. So if I'm advising a man who is uh, – for the sake of scenario analysis here, he's got 13-year-old children and he's got high child support, payments, which, child support payments, which would adjust based upon him earning a higher income. And he knows that and he is adequately caring for his children. Their needs are met. They're not suffering. Then in that situation, I'm going to tell him, build something, start a business, build something that's going to result in higher equity. Don't just pursue immediate income. If you need to make a career transition, transition into something that's going to be lower earning for the next few years. And then when your child support obligations are going to be paid, then you'll be in a situation where your income is increasing because of the equity that you built. That can be done in building of a private business. For example, maybe the trucker should pursue uh, working as an owner-operator instead of working as an employee. Uh, it can also be done in some jobs that are commission-based and that are slow to get started, such as real estate or uh, something like I did, life insurance sales and financial advice. The first five years of a financial advisor's career are very expensive, uh, very low-earning years, but the balance of the career would be much higher-earning years, and there's really not much of a way around those, those first five years. So I would, if I'm making a career decision and I know that if I take this job that's high-paying paying over here, I'm just going to lose all that money to higher taxation and child support payments. Or if I've got the other job opportunity where I'm going to build equity where my, my and deferred comp, then I'm going to move in the position of equity and deferred comp. But Chuck, I mean, you've already said that. That was just me elaborating and explaining what you already said. 
I'll think about it. No, I mean, I, I've, I've never really faced that situation in, in consultation, so I've not thought a lot about it. But I will invite any listeners who have additional ideas. This would be a great place for listeners to chime in. Come on by uh, today's show and, um, and give us your suggestions of anything that, that Chuck and I are missing. Go ahead, Chuck. Well, I just uh, really appreciate it. And I, I really uh, think you, you hit the nail on the head when, when I said start, the, start a business on the side. Usually they can use the benefit of like they one guy slept in his business until he was able, and he really wasn't realizing too much income from it, but he had a normal uh, a, a job, so his business was on the side, and then he was able to to uh, defer it, and then I think he, his, his kids are a majority age, so then he's starting to reel the, the profit from it, right. and then be able to do a career uh, transition, so exactly. it was a delayed gratification and, and long-term planning, which is, that's what I try to, to talk to people about, rather than the, the short uh, jab that that get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep it up. I mean, the biggest challenge is that um, you know the men, the men and women with the highest divorce rates are usually in the lower class, and they're often the ones who struggle the most with financial planning. The most who str- ones who struggle with business, uh, and that's kind of a, really sad. I, I don't know how relevant some of this is going to be, but I applaud you for for seeking to help these men. And 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 I do. I would encourage um, you know, it, it, as as again, I'm sure you'll agree. The primary interest here that we need to look be careful for is to protect we need to protect the innocent party and we need to protect the the person who's who's most helpless and most defenseless, which is the child and so I do appreciate your counsel to the man to say giving more money to your son or daughter is probably not going to materially change their life, but giving them the love and the care and the focus and the attention and the time and really seeking to to care for them. Uh, even though it's difficult when you're far away, that will make a big, big difference. And a lot of times, uh, I agree with you. If if I've got a 13 year old, I'm not going to say how much more money can I, how much more time can I put into business. I might just simply say, you know what? For the next few years, things are going to be tight, but I'm really going to do everything I can to build into the life of my son or daughter during this this very important transition period of childhood to adulthood, and I'll pick up my own personal financial well being in a few years. Uh, I think that's important uh, to to recognize. All right, let's go on to Matt in. North Carolina. Uh, Matt, go ahead and let us know your question or comment, and uh, let's see how I, how I can serve you today, please. Hey, Joshua. Thanks very much for the chance to be speaking to you again. Um, no, I, a lot of times when I'll listen to you talk to callers, you'll just have some very kind of quick and good consulting ideas from a business standpoint. So one of the things that I've been working on is organizing a brunch. Uh, after FinCon, I'm looking forward to going to that for the first time in, in 2017. Just for some of the folks who've been helpful to me in my own, I guess, personal finance blogging journey. Uh, certainly, as you know, you're among that crowd. Um, you know, I, I, w- I wanted to ask, essentially, kind of besides the meal, which will be delicious, do you have any special ideas to make this more interesting and valuable to the folks I hope will join me? Uh, you know, for example, in the case of each of the invites that I've made, I'd offered folks the chance to bring guests or things like that. But I'm wondering if you have ideas about ways to go beyond that. And then secondly, um, one of the things that I'm hoping to do with this is maybe use it as a chance to gain some additional visibility for my for my blogging work. And in addition to what I hope will be some of my, I guess, guests who can join me will be to do some giveaways of spots at that event uh, through my website. So 
I didn't know if you had any thoughts on on adding value there as well as combining kind of the marketing element with uh, with that thank you brunch, which is sincere. Right, right. Interesting. Um, I'm kind of feeling flat-footed at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So I'll just tell well, you, okay. yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question and I want to give you something helpful and I appreciate your heart and, and, and even your, your service. Uh, I think that probably the, just from my perspective, having, you know, I'm kind of in this in-between world where, um, uh, I'm not unknown, uh, but I'm also not a major, uh, a major, uh, celebrity. I guess my thought, you know, my thought is this. So conferences for somebody like me, and and, and would use that as an example because obviously that's the question you're asking, or other people who are in the middle tiers of of a, a profession. Something like a conference can be a very exhausting uh, experience. Mm-hmm. It's it's really yes, really sir. tiring uh, because uh, you know the the primary reason that I go to a conference is uh, or. Let me rephrase. The primary reason why I go to a financial conference, something like a FinCon, is to be available to my audience, uh, to be accessible to my audience. Because the the most important people to me are my listeners, the people who tune in. And I want to make sure that I do everything I can to be as available as possible. And it's really hard to do that uh, in on a private basis, although I try really hard. You know, even last week I had dinner with a couple of listeners who came to town. But at some point in time, you know, I always have to put borders around my schedule and make sure that my family comes first. And and you, you just I just have to turn off the email and, and I feel bad that I can't respond to everybody and I feel bad that I can't do it. But it's just it's the way it goes. So conferences can be very tiring and very um, and very tiring and very uh, uh, kind of emotionally draining because it's constant. It's from breakfast through the whole day and through the evening. Uh, and right. it's also challenging because somebody who's at a conference often has a lot of commitments and engagements. Uh, you know, I've got if you if someone has a uh, someone has a uh, 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 you know, there's have a sp- they're speaking. They're having a meetup with their audience, their listeners. I try to do that. I try to be very accessible to my audience. Have meetups or breakfasts or things like that. And so it's just challenging. The scheduling is really hard. And if you're doing podcast interviews or or TV inter- or YouTube interviews or whatever, the scheduling is really hard. So I think anything you can do to provide a little bit of a respite from that mm-hmm. that also brings value is really cool. And Probably the biggest thing that I would say that the the biggest thing that it would be exciting to me is something unique that's small, that's intimate, but that's a unique um, that's a unique activity. Uh, and when you go to these meetings, it's just as simple. When you go to a FinCon as as someone like me, uh, a podcast host. From morning till night, it is. Um, from morning till night, it's it's events. It's a breakfast thing. It's a lunch thing. PT, the 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 founder of FinCon, does a great job of providing lots of food. He does a great job with that. So there's plenty of food available. Uh, in the evening, all of the companies and the vendors. Uh, uh, make offers to go to various parties and cocktail parties. Um, there's plenty of free alcohol. There's plenty of all of that. 
what someone like what 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 I look for is and what I notice that nobody really does very well is something unique. So so get out of the cocktail circuit. You know, I'm not a big drinker and I don't drink it when when I'm in public and at situations like that. Uh, and it's just very exhausting. But if you told me, hey, let's go skeet shooting or mm-hmm. let's go and do this ATV ride or something unique like that, to me, that would be super that, – that would be something that would, that would quickly go to the top of my list. So obviously you have to balance this financially with the invitation that you make. But if you know if you told me and said, "Hey Joshua, listen, you know there's a there's a, a, a you know a skeet club or, or where is FinCon this year? Is it in um, it's Texas, right? Dallas, Dallas. Okay, yep. so you find some you know you find some local gun dealer who um, who has a class three uh, license and says, "Hey man, we can go shoot fully automatic. <laughs> we can go we can go, we can go shoot fully automatic um, rifles, and they got a full auto Glock. I mean, there's no chance in the world I'm saying no to that. Now those are those are kind of you know, guy things that really appeal to me, but that's what I would do if I were in your situ- in a situation like that. I would rent a room instead of doing a, a dinner at a hotel uh, where it's in conflict. I would set up and I might do it in the middle of the day, like a lunch, because yep. oftentimes a lunch time thing. Uh, many times, people like me, you know, I used to go to all the sessions, but at this point in time, I get so tired and I don't go out of go to all the sessions. I go to a session where I have a friend who's speaking or somebody who's maybe, uh, you know, I go to the keynotes, things like that. But if you look on the schedule and you pick a time that's not during a keynote and when there's not a lot of other presses, when there aren't a lot of other meetups, and you put together a small group of people who might like to know each other, which is the basis of connection, which you're already doing, but you, you try to figure out who would this person, who do I have in my network that I can introduce these few people? And then you put it on a fun activity. Man, that would be, uh, that'd be how I'd approach it. Um, Texas, there's gotta be, there's gotta be some, you know, uh, some, I don't know, some gun ranges or, or some ATV rides or, or, or something cool like that. Uh, to me, that would be the biggest thing. And, and that would also be fun because when I go to a conference, I, I, I almost never do any kind of tourist things. I, I fly in and I go to the thing and I fly out because I, I just want to get home as quickly as possible. So scheduling a tourist event like that, I think would be, that's the best I got for you. Yeah, cool. No, I very much appreciate the thought. Awesome. Um, <laughs> Let me know what you, uh, what you wind up with, and we'll look forward to it. I think you emailed me at some point. I don't think I ever responded. Right? Is that is that where we were? That's true. But sorry uh, about that. I wasn't going to call you out on the yeah, air about that. That's all right. Take, take a look. There's a there's a second uh, there's a second idea in there that might might be of interest to you that I won't that I won't share on the call. But <laughs> all um, right. I'll look for that. You, you got time. Um, for one more, are you two jammed up. Let me th- wait for next week. I want to take one more caller uh, from uh, from another Matt in Tennessee, and then uh, call back in with yep. you next week. All right, cool. Thanks, Matt. All right, let's go to uh, another Matt or Matthew in Tennessee. You'll be our last caller for the day. Go ahead and let me know what's on your mind, and let's see how I can serve you today, please. Hey, Joshua. Uh, thanks for taking my call today. Uh, I actually might have to drop off after I ask the question because uh, I've got to run to a meeting here. But I wanted to go ahead and and ask it, and and you can. Uh, I might actually have to get the answer on the the podcast tomorrow. But uh, uh, so I just want to give you that heads up in case you tried to have some dialogue or something, sure. um, and you didn't get anything back. Uh, so just just imagine that I am your uh, financial planning client, and we're having a discussion primarily around the investment management management piece of financial planning. Uh, what would you say to like educate me? on why it's a good decision on going with DFA funds over like a Vanguard index fund. Uh, I know in previous podcasts you said that 
DFA does a good job of keeping hot money out of their funds, but mm -hmm. what are the other advantages in going with DFA? Yeah, that's simple. Um, DFA does a good job because DFA funds are only sold through financial advisors. They do a good job of keeping hot money out, and that's big for them. They do they focus heavily on training financial advisors to train their clients, and hot money means that the clients come in and go out. Uh, and so, the one of the major helps that a financial advisor can provide to a, uh, a client is helping them to stay invested, and that helps the fund manager to be able to do a better job when he doesn't have to go and sell investments all of a sudden, and they can take advantage of some of the little things that DFA focuses on to take advantage to possibly improve their returns just a little bit. To me, that's the biggest thing, uh, is that DFA does a brilliant job of bringing together the basic ideology of passive investing, indexing, passive investing, and marries that into a package that the financial advisor can use and really serve their client. And the financial advisor is not in competition with the internet. And that's really helpful. So I think that that the, just their focus on a financial advisor, their focus on keeping costs down, their focus on trying to tweak some of those little investment things that they that they do because of the benefit of going through an advisor. To me, that's the biggest benefit. Uh, is one better than another? You have to read their literature and, and judge that. I can't I can't know that. But when I was looking at them, I really appreciated that they were focused on advisors, not going direct to the client. And I felt like there was a lot of value there that I would be able to help my clients understand. Got it. Thank you um, for that explanation. Sure. Anything else? Uh, yeah, just real quick. Uh, and, you know, and... Uh, uh, this is more about your personal uh, finances, so um, be, you know, feel free to divulge whatever you feel comfortable with. Um, so I know that you've been trying to build a business over the past three years, and I'm curious, what uh, personal planning have you done to kind of capitalize on these early years of building a business? You know, for example, like have you completed any like traditional IRA conversions to Roth during low-income, low-tax years uh, with the business or any other planning opportunities that you went through? <laughs> so I got to decide what I'm willing to talk about publicly. <laughs> um, it's, it's so hard because I've lost so much of my own personal privacy since starting this show. It's so hard to decide how much to talk about publicly and, and, and what to do because I really hate to lose um, much more privacy. So I'll just – I mean so here are a few things uh, that I have um, – that I have done. So in a business transition um, – I took a massive cut to my income. Uh, and so, yes, I have focused on taking advantage of every opportunity that has presented itself to me because of the massive cut to my income. I've focused on uh, – I, I actually took some of my I, – I took some – I closed some of my – uh, traditional IRA accounts. I didn't do conversions. I actually closed some of my uh, – just a small one or two small ones, uh, previous accounts, because 
I have become increasingly convinced that I don't want to play the game with the IRS government, with the with the U.S. government in the IRA world. Uh, I haven't gone to the point of saying, "Well, I'm never going to open one again." I haven't gone and said, "Oh, I'm never going to, um, I'm never going to going to deal with this." But when I look more and more and more. The whole scheme of put all your money into mutual funds and and um, and retirement accounts, it just doesn't work well with the major benefits of investing for an individual. I think it's really wise to invest where you have uh, a, a, an ability to compete really well. Uh, you know, I'm a big guy. I'm six foot five and over three hundred pounds. I'm not going to go into a world where I'm investing with jockeys to try to ride horses. But I may go into a world where my size is a natural advantage. And I see the same thing with regard to investing. And it often feels very lonely for me because I feel like I got to take on the whole person, you know, financial advice industry with this question. And I, I often question myself of, am I accurate in my, um, in my understanding? Am I accurate in my discussion? And, and it's really hard because kind of taking some of the opinions that I've taken forces puts me up against things that I previously said and talked to to clients. But I just don't see people winning because of IRAs and mutual funds. I really don't. Um, not that you can't win. There are people in this audience who are winning. Not that you can't win. But, you know, we had the call earlier from the guy uh, who uh, had – um, Thirty-four. It was guy, a guy who had thirty-four thousand dollars in his various uh, mutual fund accounts. If we were to go back, and I were, to, and I don't know anything more about guy other than that fact. But, but, but my guess is that he's, uh, you know, uh, uh, he's a he's a man. He's got a family, and that thirty-four thousand dollars is a big deal to him. If I were to go back and try to think, what could we do with that thirty-four thousand dollars that would be more productive than buying growth stock? mutual funds inside of IRAs and other accounts. I got to imagine at this point, I could come up with a whole long list of things that I think would be better uses of the money. Uh, I really do. And the the big challenge that I face in trying to figure out how to, um, how to, to, to do this is to look at it and say, um, it, you know, how do you, you got to, you got to know someone's background. You got to know their interests. Are they suited for business? Are they suited for entrepreneurship? So, um, for me, so I, I'm willing to say that. So I, I cashed out some of my retirement accounts because I was able to get my tax burden low enough that the 10% penalty was lower, uh, in terms of a total effective tax rate. The 10% penalty was lower than what the tax rate would be in the future. And I was able to transition some of that money from, under somebody else's control to under my direct control. And when I look at the business opportunities in front of me and the things that I'm concerned about and the things that I'm interested in, um, not so many of them can be done within an IRA. Not so many of them can be done within a uh, within a, a retirement account. So that's a, a big deal to me. Given the fact that investing with retirement accounts, it's not the only tax break. It's not the only thing that you can do. And when I look at the, the, the goals that I have, I'm finding more and more that I want the flexibility of, of business. The other thing that I have done is, is I have – I guess the other thing I'm willing to talk about is that I've become much more conservative as a person because of the unique risks and uh, 
unique risks that I face going forward that are different than some other people. I've become much more conservative. And I think about the aggressiveness and – and here I'm not talking about asset allocation conservative. What I mean is when you look at the how aggressive you want to be versus how conservative you want to be, it's really valuable to look at the whole situation. And because I have more business opportunities – which if I can figure out how to make them work, <laughs> that's a big challenge. If I can figure out how to make them work, they have more uh, – they have much more unbounded growth opportunity. That's caused me to be more aggressive with – sorry, more conservative with other areas of my life to offset that risk. Um, probably doesn't make a lot of sense if I don't give specifics, but I, I don't think at this point in time that I'm willing to give any more specifics uh, than that. Uh, just to say that uh, you know what you hear when I talk on the show, what you hear from me is uh, you know I don't uh, I don't make anything up. It's all you can hear, and you can hear some of the the, the challenges that that I face and 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 things. So I have sought to make intelligent financial moves all along the way, based upon the unique situations, you know, based upon the unique circumstances that I have, the unique advantages and benefits that I have. I have sought to do that all along the way and practice what I preach. And uh, maybe in the future I'll talk more about them, but when you're in the middle of stuff, it's you know, it's not a good time to talk about it. I'd rather keep my privacy. All sounds very skullduggerish. <laughs> That's it for today's show. Thank you all for calling in. Great number of callers. I know that I turned away about a half a dozen of you. Just uh, um, you got to get on the line early. So uh, if you'd like to participate in a call like this in the future, uh, please join as a patron uh, and also consider joining my email list at radicalpersonalfinance.com. Don't forget about sending me a voicemail feedback uh, also of, of what you've done and the changes that you've made in your life based upon Radical Personal Finance over the last few years. Uh, go ahead and send me uh, send that to me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. What you do, take your phone, navigate to the voice memo function on your phone, go somewhere quiet, and record just a quick about two minutes, uh, two or three minute uh, discussion of what the actual uh, of, of what you've done differently because of Radical Personal Finance, then email that to me, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com. Send me that over as an email for episode 500. I am going to sync all of those things together and publish it as a uh, uh, publish it as a uh, as a show just to hear other listeners. Love to hear that. Also, while you're doing it, please send me uh, a picture of you and your family uh, if you're willing. I'd love that. I'm not. It's not going to be published. It's just for me I'm making it just a little computers. Great um, slideshow that I can look at, and I look at it while I record my show. Sometimes helps me to visualize who I'm talking to, so I make sure that that my tone is appropriate and that I really can can see who I'm speaking to. So I'd love for you to do that. Thank you to those of you who've sent me that. Other announcements. I think that's it for today. Um, join the Patreon program, RadicalPersonalFinance.com/patron, and I'll be back with you on Monday. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com.